We are in the book of Daniel. And the title of Daniel comes from his primary character, Daniel. And that is the name in the Hebrew Bible as well as the Greek Bible as well as our English Bibles. There is debate over Daniel when this book was written. There are some who say it was written around 530 B.C., meaning about the time that Cyrus is ruling, Cyrus II of the Persian Empire, and Daniel is still alive. Daniel wrote probably a lot of it, and then some kind of editor or redactor came in and organized it into its final format. And that's not uncommon for like Joshua or Moses to write things, but then a redactor and editor comes in and compiles it all into a finished book. I mean, obviously Moses didn't write all of the Torah because there are things that talk about him after he died, and he's said to be the most humble man ever. Probably he would have never written that. So it's not uncommon for editors to come along later and kind of package it all up. There are others who say it was written later after the Greeks came along, around 167 to 142 B.C. And those are the two major views. And the main difference of why there's a disagreement in this views is the first view, if you remember, if you've read through Daniel, and hopefully you have, by now, chapters 7, 8, 9, and 10 specifically, and even going into 11 and 12, there's a lot of detailed predictions about the Persian Empire and the Greek Empire especially. And a lot of people say there's no way that nobody could be that accurate about things that haven't happened yet. They don't believe in prophecy. They don't believe in the ability to know the future. They don't believe in the ability of God to be able to tell you what's going to happen before it happens. So they automatically assume that the book was written later after all those events happened, after the Greek Empire. There are other people who say, well, of course we believe in prophecy. Of course we believe that God can predict the future and that kind of stuff. Therefore, we have no problem with it being written during the lifetime of Daniel. Now, typically, this is seen as an uber-liberal perspective. I don't believe in prophecy. Therefore, it's after the Greek Empire. And then the, I believe, was written during the time of Daniel, a conservative view of evangelical Christians. However, it's not so easily divided because there are some evangelical Christians who do believe in prophecy and God's ability to predict the future, but they believe that it was written after the Greeks came along because of certain things that happened in the book of Daniel. In my opinion, we can spend all day arguing about the dating, and to some extent the dating is important for certain books in order to determine the authenticity of that book. However, sometimes it's like, it's obvious that this is a craft, a work of craftsmanship, and that we have it in its final form, and you can spend forever arguing about the date and never get into the book and find out what God actually has to say to you. If you're really interested in that kind of stuff, there are very dense commentaries that you can go to and look into it, but I did want to highlight those views. Now, there is compelling evidence for an earlier view of Daniel being written during around the 500s, 400s, because we now know through archaeology and some other evidences that the First Testament or Old Testament canon was complete by the end of the, the 200s, going into the 140s. And so we know that we, had, we have a pretty much a copy of the Bible or evidence of archaeological manuscripts that suggests that all the books in the First Testament that we know of were all considered canon and officially the Bible by the time we get to the 142 around the Maccabeans. So some people are saying, oh, it wasn't written to then, 
That's a problem because Daniel would have to be written, then circulated, then read and digested and studied by enough Christians in a time period without internet and without cars and airplanes. That letter has to circulate around for enough people to read it and say, we believe that this is inspired by God and it is the word of God. And then everybody has to start using it enough, which usually takes multiple generations, in order to say this is the word of God. So if you're saying that Daniel wasn't written until around 42, 142 B.C., yet the Bible was already canonized, the First Testament, by then, then that suggests that Daniel was at least written by the 300s because there had to be enough generations to be circulating this book, reading it, and saying we accept it as the Word of God. So I think that is a huge evidence for why this is an early dating. But then, therefore, it gives an extra force to the prophecies that God truly does know what's going to happen and that there is a future and he already has everything figured out. And that, I think, is a major point of the book of Daniel, of that point. And we'll talk about that when we get to purpose. You've often heard of Daniel. This is kind of a minor point, but I do want to hit it. You've kind of often heard that Daniel is a prophet. However, Daniel is not a prophet. Now, for some people, you don't really care about that. Other people, this is important. But Daniel is not a prophet. A lot of times he's lumped into a class like Daniel and the prophets. He's thrown in with the prophetic books in our own Bible. And we kind of see him as someone who has seen the future and having visions. And that feels very prophetic to us. In fact, it is prophecy. So we think that Daniel is a prophet in that kind of sense. However, that's not what being a prophet is. It's not prophesying or predicting things. That is a thing that prophets can do. But there are other rules here. And in order to understand that Daniel is not a prophet, the thing that you must understand is that there are two things that make a prophet a prophet. And the first thing that makes you a prophet is that you're in the divine counsel of Yahweh. Now, some of you don't know that terminology. If you want to dive in deeper than that, I've got a document and an audio on my website called the Divine Council of Yahweh. But basically, the Divine Council of Yahweh is Yahweh has this council um, of beings, angels, if you want to call them that, who are up in heaven with them. And we see this in visions where God is up there and there's these angels and they, they work with God to run the universe. Now, that God, remember, God doesn't need them. And it's not a council like God's like, I don't know what to do. Hey, I need some advice. And we go to the council and ask for advice. God doesn't need that. It's a, it's a council where God uses them. And they, they, they're, they are allowed to have input. And their input can change things. And God then sends them out to make changes on the planet. And we've seen that through angelic visitations throughout the entire Bible. And, but at any time, because he is God, he can trump them. And he can do whatever he wants. Now, some people might feel that threatening, like, wow, God actually takes the input of people. But that's exactly what he does with us. He takes our input through prayer. And he says, you do not have because you do not ask for it. And he makes it clear that we need to pray through repetition, ask him and we'll receive and all that kind of stuff. And he doesn't need us to share the gospel, but he does. He sends us out to share the gospel. He allows us to affect change. So basically the way that we see the church through prayer, influencing God, for lack of a better phrase, or asking from him that something that we would want to receive, and the fact that he sends us out into the world to make change is no different than what he already does with the angels. The difference is they're actually in the presence of God. And we're not. We're here down on earth. 
the prophets are actually brought up into this. They're the only humans that are ever brought up into this. And you see this in Isaiah chapter 6 with the vision of Isaiah going to the throne room. You see this with prophets. You'll see Zechariah and that kind of stuff. And Micaiah, we see that. First Kings chapter 21, Micaiah is brought in divine counsel. And they're actually, and Amos is brought up there and God says, hey, what do you see? What do you want to do? They're brought up in the divine council, and God actually says, I want you to join me in this conversation in heaven, and then I'm going to send you down and do the second thing that makes you a prophet. The second thing that makes you a prophet is you actually take what you've seen and what you've been told by God, and you go out to the people, and you speak, thus saith Yahweh. And you begin to teach the people and instruct them, because the role of a prophet is there to make sure the people know the will of Yahweh, and they hold to the will of Yahweh. So the prophet speaks the will of God, Yahweh, to the people, and then when they do not follow it or in alignment with them, he's like the covenant watchdog that basically warns them a judgment is going to come if they don't straighten up. So these are the two primary roles of a prophet. The prophet knows the will of God because he was brought up into heaven, and God spoke his will to him. Then he goes down to the people, and he speaks his will to the people, And he calls them out when they do not do the will of people. With Daniel, you never see this. God never speaks to him in the book of Daniel. He's always spoken to through angels. He's never brought up in the divine council. Yes, he sees a vision of God sitting on his throne, but he's very distant in that vision. And he's mostly focused on the beasts that are there coming out of the sea. And he never interacts with the throne. He never interacts with God. God never speaks to him. God never sends him like Isaiah who will go on our behalf. And Isaiah says, here I am, send me. He never gives him any instructions. And when the angels do come and speak to Daniel, they never tell Daniel, go to the people and say this. They just say, this is what the dream means. And they don't usually give you any better interpretation than what you already (laughs) kind of were figuring out on your own. And so we never see God interacting with Daniel, never speaking to Daniel, and never charging Daniel with a task. Daniel never speaks to the people. He never says, thus saith Yahweh. He never goes to them. He never instructs them. He never corrects them, rebukes them, brings judgment upon them, warns them of anything. And he never seems to suggest that he has a special gift, that he's gifted by God in any kind of way, that he's called by God in any kind of way. And nowhere in the Bible, in the First Testament or the Second Testament, does anybody ever refer to him as a prophet or called by God in any kind of a way. And in the original Hebrew Bible, Daniel is not with the prophets like he is with the English Bible. You have to understand in the English Bible, the books of the Bible are in completely different order than the original Hebrew Bible. And so nothing here seems to suggest that Daniel is a prophet. However, that does not mean that Daniel is not an incredibly godly man who is privileged by God to see some amazing visions and future events and that he was faithful to write those down and that we can now see them. So this doesn't mean he's ungodly. Remember, Ruth is not a prophet, but she was an incredibly godly woman. And David wasn't a prophet, but he was a man of God's own heart. So this does not mean that he was not godly or used by God or beneficial to the community of believers. It just means he wasn't a prophet. He is a godly man who wrote the book, but he is not a prophet. Let's talk about the setting. Remember, the main theme, two main themes that are going throughout the entire Bible is Yahweh is absolutely sovereign over all things. And that Yahweh is a redeeming God who pursues us 
in order to bring us back into a right relationship with us. And he does this primarily through his chosen people, Israel. And so these are the themes you see throughout the Bible. So in Genesis, Yahweh begins his story by, through the creation account, he establishes that he is absolutely sovereign over all creation by the fact that he created everything. And all the pagan accounts of creation, they don't create everything, and they create out of things that already exist. In Yahweh's creation account in Genesis, he creates things that are new and fresh and did not already exist. And he creates everything, and he puts it all together and calls it good in an orderly way. All this establishes him as, I am completely sovereign and powerful over all things, because I created and ordered all things. That theme is established when the humans rebel against him. By rebelling against him, this is sin because they're rebelling against their creator. So God comes to Abraham and chooses him to create a new people. And through these people, he will demonstrate his sovereignty, and then he will bless them. And this is the most important part of Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, so that you may be a blessing to the world. So there's two major things that God is promising him, land and blessings that he will then bless the world with. And so in the Garden of Eden, land is extremely important because that's where God and Adam and Eve came together and dwelt in the land. And the blessings of the garden allowed them to thrive physically, emotionally, socially, relationally with God. They lost that when they kicked out. So God comes to Abraham and says, I'm going to reestablish that land eventually through your people so you can be a blessing to the world. So eventually, as he has descendants, God instructs them and teaches them, and then they end up in Egypt. And then in Egypt, we know this story, this famous one. He brings them out of Egypt through the Exodus through great acts of power where he basically shows himself more sovereign than Egypt and more sovereign than all the Egyptian gods. And all those, if you remember, the, all those plagues are basically direct attack against specific Egyptian gods, where he's basically taking them down, like picking a fight with them on the playground and beating them up. But it's okay because they're gods and they deserve it. But you don't do that with humans. This Exodus event becomes the greatest act of salvation in the history of all the Israelites. The only act of salvation that will be anything greater than that in the Bible is the cross of Christ. And even then, when Christ is going to the cross, remember he was in the Mount of Allah or the Mount of Transfiguration with Elijah and Moses, and they were talking about his exodus. Because he's directly making connection there. So God brings them out, and he brings them to Mount Sinai. And at Mount Sinai, he gives them three things. He gives them the law to govern them righteously so that they will be able to have a relationship with him because they will be in right standing with him as they live rightly with him and all people. He gives them the tabernacle so that they can actually enter into the presence of God, which is like a little micro garden of Eden. And then he gives them the sacrificial system because he knows they're going to screw up by sinning with the law and they need a way to atone for their sins so they can get into the presence of God in the tabernacle. So the law is the way that you get into the tabernacle with God and the sacrificial system is the way that you atone yourself so you can get into the tabernacle with God. And he gives them these three things and he calls them to be a unique and holy people that are unlike anybody else in the entire world and to go out and change the world. And he's going to give them the promised land. Eventually, throughout the time period of the judges and the kings, all leaders fail. 
And that's the whole story. When, when Paul says, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, for us that's an abstract theological concept that we often learn in our church. For the Jews, it's all the hundreds of stories of the judges and the kings and the, all the prophets failing miserably over and over and over and over again. And that's what comes flooding into their mind, those pictures and those stories of them failing miserably. And so eventually under David, he builds him a great empire, but his son takes over Solomon, and Solomon follows the pagan gods, and God splits the kingdom into two pieces. The northern kingdom in the north is Israel and its ten tribes, and the southern kingdom is Judah and its one tribe. And they all begin to become worse and worse and worse and worse. And remember, the Canaanites were like so evil that they had to be wiped out. By the end of Kings, God says the Israelites have become worse than the Canaanites. And so they have become incredibly evil. And so God decides to bring a judgment on them. In 722, during the 700s, the pre-exilic prophets come and start saying, if you don't change, if you don't start worshiping Yahweh alone, and if you don't start invoking social justice and taking care of the poor and the downtrodden and the foreigners and all that kind of stuff, then the Assyrians are going to come and get you. And they ignored that. And in 722, the Assyrians sacked Israel, the ten northern tribes, and took them into exile and scattered them. Most of them died, the Israelites, and very few were scattered. And the only reason that Judah wasn't taken was because that famous king Hezekiah repented right before the Assyrians came, or as they were at the, actually right at the doorstep, and God stayed their judgment and gave them an extension. But after Hezekiah's death, Judah began to fall back into pagan practices, and then in 586 B.C., the Babylonians came under Nebuchadnezzar II and took them into exile, leaving only the most poor of the Judaites left back in the land. And everybody else was taken into exile. So that's where our story begins. Our story begins with the Babylonians. The Syrians were the most dominant empire in the entire world. A man by the name of Nabopolassar rose up in power in the Babylonians. And Nabopolassar made a deal, a, a treaty with the Medes that were north of him, and they made an alliance, and they joined together in order to conquer the Assyrians. Now, like I said, I'm going to go in more detail as we keep going, because as we get to Daniel 2 and 7, we're going to really have to know these empires. Right now, I'm just going to kind of give you a setup for chapter 1, and then when we get to chapter 2, we're going to go in a lot more detail. So if you're like, there's a lot of names being thrown at me, don't worry. I'm going to keep reviewing this over and over and over and over as we go through these books um, so that you understand it. And I'll show you maps later. So Nabopolassar builds the Babylonian Empire into a great empire. In 605 B.C., Nabopolassar and his son, Nebuchadnezzar II, defeat the Assyrians completely. In that same year, 605 B.C., Nabopolassar dies, and Nebuchadnezzar II becomes the king of the Babylonian Empire. Nebuchadnezzar is going to build the greatest, most wealthiest empire the world has ever seen up to that time point. And Nebuchadnezzar is the Babylonian Empire. When he dies, everything is going to be kind of fall down and go to the, um, downward into the gutter. He becomes king. In 605, there's only one nation left in the entire Middle East that had not been conquered by the Assyrians, and that was Judah. 
But now Judah is so sinful and so disobedient to God that they no longer have God's protection. And the prophets have already told them, specifically Jeremiah, that the Babylonians are coming and there's nothing you can do to stop them. And to rebel against them is a rebel against God. So Nebuchadnezzar comes down in that same year, 605, and he sacks them. He, put, he, does it, he comes in and he puts them under siege. The first thing he does is he takes Jehoiakim, the la, one of the last kings of Israel, and he takes them captive and takes them back to Babylon as a prisoner. And then he puts a new king, Zedekiah, into power who will be controlled by him. That's where this book of Daniel begins. Jehoiachin is taken captive, and at the same time he takes Jehoiachin, the la, one of the last kings of Judah, into captivity, he also kidnaps a bunch of the nobles, the wealthy, young men who were living in Jerusalem. And he takes Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego as captives, and he carries them all up into exile. He then replaces them with Ze- Zechariah, uh, um, sorry, Zedekiah, and he becomes the puppet king over Judah. But eventually Zedekiah begins to rebel against Nebuchadnezzar II. He doesn't like that. So he comes back again in 597, and he basically forces him to submit and takes him under control, and then takes another wave of nobles, including Ezekiel. And Ezekiel goes into exile at that time too. And then he comes back in 586 BC and completely sacks everything. He kills all Zedekiah's sons and daughters in front of him. He blinds Zedekiah and carries them off into exile. And he carries all the wealthy people left out into exile. He completely destroys Jerusalem and the city walls. He destroys the temple completely and carries all the articles of the temple out back to Babylon. And he takes them back in 586 B.C. So the story of Daniel begins with these four men, Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And they have just been kidnapped by the Babylonians along with their king. And they've been carried over 300 miles on foot back to the Babylonian Empire where they're being brought into the palace. And Nebuchadnezzar is going to begin a re-education of the way that they think and the way that they act in this empire. As they're there getting re-educated under the Babylonian control, they're going to hear news eventually of another wave on Jerusalem, another attack, wondering if the rest of their family has been killed or massacred in that. And then they're going to hear news of another wave of an attack that's going to completely destroy Jerusalem and completely destroy the temple and not knowing whether any of their family members are alive or not in that massacre. And so this is going to be a devastating... And they're around 12, 13, 14 years old. Imagine being a 12 to 15-year-old You've been kidnapped away from home. And every once in a while you get news of Jerusalem being attacked again and again. And then you hear the most devastating news of all. Your land has been completely wiped out. And the temple of God has been completely destroyed. And everyone's been carried off into exile that's anybody of note. And only the poor are left behind. Just as Jeremiah specifically, but many other prophets, had predicted would happen. And the only thing that you have as you are a refugee being brainwashed in a foreign country, not knowing about your family, is one little promise in Jeremiah that in 70 years you're going to return back to the land as a people. And this is their life. 
and the book of Daniel. And this is where chapter 1 is going to pick up with Daniel. And as a 13, 14 year old, that should emphasize you all the more how amazing these men's faith is, given their age and their circumstances and what they're hearing on the news, so to speak, and yet they're still committed not to defile themselves in the eyes of Yahweh. And that's a huge challenge to us as we read this book. 